0: And amen. We have been singing some really, really powerful truths this morning, and I pray that uh, God's word has already spoken to you through that. I would like to ask you if you would um, join me in a word of prayer before we begin our exposition through John chapter 4. Lord, we come to you this morning as a people who truly are pardoned by grace and in need of ongoing grace, and we thank you that. You are a God whose reservoirs of mercy and love and grace, righteousness and holiness are beyond tapping. Your well of mercy will never run dry, and we are grateful for that. We come to you this morning with an earnestness in our longing to know you better, to hear from you a word of hope, a word of life, of healing, a word of forgiveness and redemption. Lord, we thank you that as we gather as your people, that you have promised to be in our midst. The Spirit of Christ, that gift, the Holy Spirit, is going to stir hearts today. And we are confident of this because you have promised that your word will not return void. Now we understand, Lord, that it may be that your word is going to bring life. And it may mean also that your word is going to bring life condemnation we pray Lord if the latter would occur that the hope of the gospel might also accompany that bad news that we are sinners and Lord we pray this morning that you would be in this gathering help us to hear the word that brings healing help us as we gather on this Father's Day Lord to be mindful of honoring our parents as children being thankful for them and Lord, even the fact that some of us are not fathers, or some of us didn't have great fathers. We're thankful that you are a father who surpasses all others. that you are faithful and just and true. You give good gifts to your children. You seek their welfare, and you have the power to heal, to restore, to save. We thank you, Lord, that you have called us, each and every one of us, who are men or who are young boys who will grow up to be men, to be spiritual fathers. And we're thankful for the many men, I am thankful for the many men who have impacted my life through the years. Men who biologically have no relationship to me, but in Christ we are brothers, and yet they have served as father figures in a variety of ways, and I'm confident that that has happened through to many of us here today. And so we rejoice in that spiritual faith that can be passed down from one generation to another for the wisdom of those that have gone on before and that their time to sit with young fathers, young men, and mentor them and shape them. You've called us to this, Lord, and we thank you for that. We ask now that you would bless your word both here and abroad. May it be held with high regard. And as we hear it, may we hear it as the word of the Lord and not of men. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. If you would open up your copy of the scripture and join me this morning, we are in John chapter 4, and we are actually going to jump a little ahead. Uh, We are going to go verses 4, 43, chapter 4, verse 43, all the way through chapter 5 and verse 15. Now, sometimes it's been the case that on that little sermon card, I'm behind the game. So I thought I'd mix it up and we would get ahead of the game. I don't know. It's just the way it happened. Um, Sometimes laying those things out in advance, they, they don't come to the fruition that you hope for. So if you're in your copy of the scriptures, John chapter four, verse forty-three, it's in page eight eighty-nine in the blue Bibles that are provided. I invite you to find your way there. And again, please hear the word of God. I'm gonna read this passage in its entirety. Beginning in John four forty-three. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son For he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked, them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. After this, there was, also, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. This ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, and may he write its truths upon all our hearts. We see in this passage two stories of Jesus doing healing. And before we get into those two stories, I want us to go back and look at verses 43 through 45. In my understanding of this passage that we just read through, these, these verses serve as an interpretive key that unlocked the rest of the passage. You see, Jesus had been invited to stay in Samaria. We saw earlier in chapter 4, just a few verses before. He stayed there for two days. The Samaritans received Jesus for who He was. He did no signs there. There's no record of that. But the Galilean Jews, they welcomed Jesus not for who He was, but what he could do. These first three verses provide some important details. First, we see that Jesus spent two days with the Samaritans before he continued his journey to Galilee. That's in verse 43. And this holds all of chapter 4 together. A Jew hanging with Samaritans, it just doesn't happen. It wasn't done. And yet, these Samaritans who were looking for the Messiah, who had a distorted religion, they were eager to welcome him based on his words, as you look at verses 41 and 42. The things that Jesus said to them, not for any sign that he had done. And what do they declare about Jesus? Based on his words, that he is the Savior of the world. So this is what we see first, this connection between Samaritans who welcomed Jesus because of who he was in opposition to Jews who welcomed Jesus for what he could do for them. You need to hold that in your mind for a moment. Here's a second editorial comment John makes in verse 44. It's either sarcastic or ironic And I think it functions a little bit as a street light illuminating a dark road, which is verse 45. We're told that Jesus himself had testified that a prophet had no honor, has no honor in his own hometown. John's adding that in based on something Jesus had told them previously. And so this helps us understand how is it that this could be true when Jesus returns to his hometown and he receives a warm reception. They welcome him. I think John is being sarcastic or ironic. Jesus comes into Galilee as a miracle worker, not a Messiah. The Samaritans receive him as a Messiah. The Jews, they saw the signs that he had done in Jerusalem, and they're rubbing their hands together. Oh, this is going to be good. Get your lawn chairs out and follow Jesus, because there's going to be a show going on. And what we see in these two verses, verses 44 and 45, is they prepare us for what will unfold in chapters 5 through 8. This this tension between Jews who sought signs yet rejected their Messiah and then grow increasingly hostile to them, to him. So, in summary, in these first three verses, we see two contrasting responses to Jesus. There is a genuine belief that He is the Messiah, and then there is a rejection of His Messiahship, and it comes in two forms. People who are enamored with His signs, but don't believe in Him as the Messiah, and then people who are not at all enamored with Jesus and who are working openly to oppose Him. Should we be surprised that today people rush to Jesus for what they can get out of him. False teachers espouse a false gospel. They draw people with a message that's supposed to make your life better, easier, healthier, richer, more successful. You add the adjectives. And they end up creating a false God who is just on the shelf of our hearts right next to all the other gods of our making. A God whose sole purpose is to make us happier. Their message doesn't confront sin in the individual. Their message doesn't contain a call for repentance or a cry for forgiveness of sins by faith in Jesus. The simple fact is, what I've said so far is that our day is a lot like the day of Jesus. People are far more interested in curing themselves, satisfying themselves, or otherwise improving their own lives and have little to no interest in knowing God. So here's the question I'm going to ask today. How would you describe your interest in Jesus? Are you into Jesus for who He is as the Samaritans were? Or for what He can do for you as the Jews were? Now before you make your final decision, and I hope... That if you aren't into Jesus for who he is, that what you will hear and see today in these two stories of grace that we're about to unpack, that you will see two different responses to grace and you will choose the better one. Here's the, the point that I'm trying to make, is to urge each and everyone who hears this message to respond to God's mercy and grace with faith. It's simple. I want to urge you and show you why responding to the grace and mercy of God should provoke us to faith rather than to indifference. And we see that in these two stories God's mercy. There is this common grace that God pours out upon all of humanity. The Bible tells us that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. We live in a beautiful state, in a wonderful country, and in a great environment and time of of life. With all the ills aside of our society, I would not want to go back to the 1800s. I love air conditioning. And I love fast cars and motorcycles. We live in a spectacular moment, and this is a common grace that all of us can benefit from. We have clean water. We have homes. But God's mercy always results in a response. The reality is that response may be a response of faith. Or it may be a response of rejection. And we'll see that in these two stories. So if you look at um, verses 46 through the end of chapter 4, we see a portrait of grace received. And then in chapter 5, verses 1 through 15, we see a portrait of grace rejected. So these two healing parables, or not parables, these two healing stories show us two different responses to the same Jesus... Into the same grace. One man believes, the other man is at best indifferent. Let's look at verses 46 through 54. This son has an urgent need. When Jesus came to Cana in Galilee, the word spread. It was the place where he had made the water wine. There was an official in Capernaum whose son was ill, and when he heard that Jesus was there, he came and he asked him. And that word asked isn't just a polite, sir, if you got time. He is begging for his son's life. You have a son's urgent need and a father's desperate cry for help save my son. He is near the point of death. And Jesus, what does Jesus do? In verse 48, there's a rebuke. Now, I want you to see something. Jesus said, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. What's lost in our English is the fact that those two you's are really y'alls. Jesus is speaking not just to this man, but to everyone who's there. Remember, the key in verses 43 through 45, some people are believing in Jesus as a miracle worker instead of a messiah. And that is the people that Jesus is speaking to when he addresses this father. And in fact, we even see that the father represents the Galileans. He is not at all interested in who Jesus is, but simply the need of his son's life. It It eclipses all other interests for this father. He is single-minded. Save my son, he says a second time in verse 49. He's not interested in theological debates. He's not interested in prophecy of who this Messiah was. He's, He's not even aware that the Word who was made flesh, the light and life of the world, the fullness of God who came with grace and truth, is standing in front of him. He is blinded by his need and he is acting just as the Galileans did. I want this. Now he has real. Uh, he, he has a real incentive, doesn't he? I mean, he's not an interested bystander who's just curious. What will Jesus do for some random guy that I don't know? He has a vested interest in Jesus saving his son. Jesus' rebuke is an understanding that the welcome he received and the faith that desires a cure, but does not trust in him. The father is desperate, though. He repeats his request in verse 49. And what does Jesus do? He graciously answers and granted his petition. And we're told the man believed and went home. And then on his way home, we don't know the distance between where he met Jesus and where he lived, but apparently some of his servants started the pilgrimage to where they knew their boss was, and they meet halfway on that road. And they tell him, as he sees them, no doubt we could expect this man's heart would be knotted up, he would be anxious, they're here, do they have good news? Or do they have bad news? Is my son alive? As Jesus said he would be. Or is he dead? And they tell him, he's recovered. And then he spontaneously says, when did this happen? Well, yesterday, about the seventh hour. And in his mind, he immediately connects Jesus' healing with his, his, Jesus' words with his son's healing. The very time that Jesus told him your son will live was the very time that indeed his son began to recover. This man shows us something. And what we see here in this first portrait of one who truly does believe, notice that the father is first described as one who believed, and then we are told, where is it, in verse 52 when he asked and discovered this, that it was exactly the time that Jesus had told him, verse 53, Jesus, or we're told that the father himself believed a second time and all his household. What do we do with this? Well, I think what happened is the first occurrence of the father's belief is the simple fact he's trusting Jesus' word that his son would live, and he's going to rush home to find out if it's true. Unlike the Galileans who wanted to see signs, this man actually left believing Jesus' word. He hadn't seen anything. He hadn't received any report yet. He simply trusted Jesus' word. But the second occurrence of the father's faith, and then the fact that this spread to his household, indicates to us that his faith went beyond just Okay, I trust that you will meet me at 3 o'clock tomorrow, and we will do this. To a, oh my. That man I met in, in Galilee, at Capernaum, that man truly is the Christ. It is no coincidence that the very time he is speaking to me miles away from my house, and a day later that my son is better when I get home. This man has a genuine conversion experience. Now let's jump to chapter 5 in verses 1 through 15. Remember, the Samaritans believed that Jesus was the Messiah. The Jews were seeking a miracle worker. Now a father and his household have believed that Jesus is the Christ. And we will see in verses 1 through 15, a man who was healed from being an invalid for 38 years, yet he responds to unmerited grace with indifference. We look in verse 5, or verse 1 of chapter 5, there was a feast. And what's interesting is that John will often drop in these feasts, Jesus' work and his obedience to the law as a devout Jew, uh, the men of Israel were commanded to appear in Jerusalem at least three times a year for a significant feast. In this time, we're not told which feast it was. Other times we are told. But here's Jesus participating. And each time, because this is the second time we're told that Jesus showed up for a feast, chapter 2, and what does he do there? He cleanses the temple. And so John, for a second time, shows us that when Jesus and a feast are connected, something is about to happen. And so what is about to happen? Jesus goes to a place that has multitude of sick and injured people, people who are paralyzed and have all kinds of infirmities. It's a a pool that's by this gate. And he asks what appears to be an obvious question in verse 6. Or verse 7. Yeah, verse 6. Do you want to be healed? Now, on the surface it seems a little bit like hey captain obvious right thank you no no i kind of like this you know laying on the filthy ground watching people step on me and over me it's just great 38 years it's really starting to grow on me don't interpret it that way okay Jesus' question, we'll come back to it. In verse 7, we see the man's situation. I want to bring some attention to what his response is. It seems very clear that this sick man has lost hope. There is no one to assist him. Others get into the water before he can. And then Jesus, quite unexpectedly, and without any real reason to do this, tells the man to get up and take up his mat and walk. And he does. He does. And then in verses 9 through 13, the man, not Jesus, but the healed man is facing questions from the Jewish leadership on what is he doing on a Sabbath day doing work by carrying his bed. Verse 14, Jesus finds the man a second time, and this time he calls him to holiness. And then that man goes and tells the Jewish leaders who Jesus is. What are we going to take away from this healing here? First, there's four takeaways I want to leave with you this morning. First is this. God's grace is undeserved, and it ought to provoke us to consider our need. God's grace to each and every one of us is undeserved, and it ought to provoke us to consider our need. Did God owe either of these men anything? Was there anything in these men that prompted God, that required Jesus to do what they asked? In fact, the second guy didn't even ask. Jesus found him. The same is true for us today. We receive a grace. We are presented with a grace That the forgiveness of sins can be actually achieved, and not by our works, but by His righteousness. In fact, it has been achieved. Jesus lived such a perfect life that He can now grant a righteousness that is an alien righteousness to us, and we can be reconciled to God because of His goodness. And why does Jesus do this for us? Because we deserve it? No because it's grace because it's mercy it flows from the heart of the father who loves consider the grace that God has shown you and be humbled by it it's undeserved think of this the holy God of all eternity took on flesh and stood before two men who did not at all understand who he was he's he loves us that much that he took on flesh. Jesus, his question was to provoke this man to think about his need. That's where I get the second part of this. God's grace is undeserved. Yes, neither man deserved the, the miracle that Jesus did. And where do we get the fact that the question uh, that God's grace is to provoke our own reflection on the fact that we have a need, we see it in Jesus's question for this man. His, his question goes beyond the obvious one. Yes, Jesus knew this man wanted to be healed or else he wouldn't be there near a superstitious body of water that some people thought the angel stirred up and was likely probably an artesian well that was bur- bubbling and gurgling. Southern Indiana, there's these... Long before the Civil War in West Baden, um, there was these springs that came out of the limestone and it was stunk like sulfur and there was a little bit of color in it, but people began to bathe in it and they were warm mineral waters and said it had healing powers. And so all these buildings get erected. We got hot springs just down the road, right? The same thing is said of there. This is not a new thing. There's this belief that there's medicinal powers in the water. But Jesus wants this man to reflect. He had become so hardened by his condition that he was hopeless and perhaps annoyed by Jesus's question. His response is a bit terse Sir, sir, just, I got nobody here to help me. And whenever the waters gurgle or bubble or move, everybody races in there before I can get there. What would those waters do for him? That Jesus couldn't? In fact, could those waters do anything for him? I'd like to quote Don Carson. He says, Just as the water from the purification pots of the Orthodox could neither produce nor produce righteousness, nor be mistaken for the new wine of the kingdom, chapter 2. And just as the water from Jacob's well could not satisfy the ultimate thirst of religious people who may have looked to genuine revelation, but whose views were widely viewed as aberrant, so the promises of superstitious religion have no power to transform the truly needy. We need to understand our need for an undeserved grace that can only be found in Christ. Here's the second takeaway from this healing. God's word gives life. We look at these two portraits. A man who initially believed the word and then believed in the person and a man who was healed by the word but seems to have no interest in Jesus. After all, he left The man who healed him after 38 years and didn't even ask him for his name. I mean, come on. I can be rude at times, but I don't know that I would do that. I mean, there would be a lot of excitement. There's other passages of Scripture where Jesus healed blind people, whether it was Bartimaeus or others. And they they went and spread the word Jesus told one group of people, don't tell anybody. And they told everybody. He healed blind Bartimaeus, and blind Bartimaeus, he picks up and becomes a follower of Jesus. What does this guy do? I don't know his name. I'm off doing my own thing now. I waited 38 years. I got so much time and so many things to to do that I wasn't able to do. I don't know. He seems to be very callous. And yet, here we see for a second time in today's text that Jesus' words are powerful. Verse 8 He healed someone who wasn't even in his presence. Just by speaking the words. And now with his word, he healed a man who'd been bound by an infirmity for 38 years. And this man, according to verse 9, he was able to get up immediately and take up his mat and take off. We see... Not only do Jesus' words give healing and life, but the fact that Jesus used only his word to perform these two miracles is even made more significant on the fact that it was on, the second one was on the Sabbath day. Now think about this. Why is that a big deal? Well, we're going to see why it becomes a big deal. Obviously, to Jesus, it wasn't. Now, in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, chapter 31, verses 12 through 17, It was God's word that instituted the Sabbath. The Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Now, what are we to make of this? This sign that was to be a symbol of God's covenant with his people through all the ages A sign that appears even in the book of Genesis when God created and rested on the seventh day. Six days he worked and he rested on the seventh. Well, that begs the question, what is work? The Old Testament assumption is that work refers to one's customary employment. By Old Testament standards, it's not clear that this healed man was actually violating the law because guess what? He hadn't carried anything for... 38 years. He's not doing his normal job. However, according to the tradition of the elders, he was breaking their law. Now, think about this. If it's God's word that can institute this this command, the Sabbath, and then it is the literal word of God in flesh who speaks and heals on the Sabbath, How can you find fault with that? God himself is doing this. We're going to dig into this more because this Sabbath breaking that this man has done will spill over into Jesus' ministry as we go through chapters 5 through 8, and it will become a very big sticking point with the Jewish leadership. So let me just let it suffice to say at this point that the, the Jews are really upset about this violation of the covenant, as they understand it. And even though this man was healed, they're not interested in his healing, they're more interested in his law-breaking. But Jesus' words down in verse 17, just two verses past where we're going to stop, or where we're stopping today, he basically says in verse 17 that he has a right to work on the Sabbath because his father does. And so here what we see, setting the Sabbath aside for a moment, what we see in this second takeaway from these two passages is the power of trusting God's Word. The Word of God is living and powerful. Scripture says it's like a two-edged sword. It divides and pierces our hearts. It, it has the ability to both cut with precision and expose to us things about our own hearts in a way that does hurt, but also is intended to bring healing. It is God's Word that has life, not man's. We need to trust the Word. We don't need new signs. Has the Word changed? I mean, when Paul wrote the stuff he does at the beginning of Romans about morality and righteousness, Has all that changed? Is is the God who was really bound by these rules in the Old Testament, is He no longer interested in them and we can do whatever? Well, we need to trust the Word of God. We need to trust the person of Jesus. Now notice, uh, here's the third takeaway, and that is this. Grace, God's grace, will be opposed. Expect it. God's grace is going to be opposed. You look at verses 11 through 13, the the Jews, they confront the man for breaking the Sabbath. And what does he do? He blames the unknown healer. These Jews are not at all celebrating, nor does it appear that the man told him, guys, who cares about me carrying a little straw mat on the Sabbath? Do you know what just happened to me? 38 years, I couldn't do anything. And this man he approached me and he spoke to me and all of a sudden every weak thing in my body is gone. I'm strong. This is a miracle. I mean, what else would he be saying to them? But it doesn't appear he says anything. And nor are they at all interested in his healing. Far more concerned they are about telling people who was the one who told you to break the law. The same will be played out in John 9 when the blind man is healed. And what we see here in the response, even though it's not initially directed to Jesus, is the very first open hostility towards Jesus expressed in the Gospel of John. So when God does merciful things, and when He shows grace to sinners... When he demonstrates the power by his word to bring conviction both of what is wrong in us and what is right in him. And the, the call for us to accept and believe these things. Understand that as powerful as God is, not all will embrace him as king, as sovereign Lord and Savior. The fact that some are only interested in his miracles is still a rejection of Jesus as Messiah. As much as it is a rejection of Jesus for those who actively oppose him. Here's the fourth takeaway. Don't waste God's grace. We see that in verse 14. Don't waste God's grace. Jesus withdrew. Jesus then found the man a second time. And this time he gives him a new word. Did you notice that? See, you are well, verse 14. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. What Jesus has done is connected his mercy, healing this man, now with the need for this man to have a changed life. Now this is really important, so we're going to take a couple minutes here. Understand, God isn't saying clean yourself up and then I will reward you with grace. God is giving grace and then says the response of the heart who understands grace is to live a holy life. And so what Jesus is doing here is calling the man to change. The simplest interpretation is that this man's illness was somehow tied to a specific sin. And thus Jesus is warning the man, there are worse things, boy, than being an invalid. And this is a word of caution, okay? I remember a young boy, as a young boy, about... 13 years of age, listening behind an open doorway as a man told my dad that the reason my older brother had cancer and HIV was because my dad had sinned and needed to confess it. So here's a word of caution. Not all illnesses or problems are connected to personal sin. We live in a fallen world, don't we? In the scriptures, there are examples of bad things happening to people that have nothing to do with their specific sin. You look at Luke chapter 13 today, there's this wall that fell in Jerusalem and killed a bunch of people. There was a tower that fell, and his disciples are like, did you read the Jerusalem Post this morning, Jesus? Man, these people, I mean, if a wall falls on you, you're walking by, it must mean that they are sinners. And he's like, what? He rebukes them and has to correct them. But the fact of the matter is you may not be suffering because of a particular sin. But we ought to examine ourselves lest we be overtaken in a fault. And we don't have to look for a boogeyman behind every problem, every injury, every catastrophe. We live in a fallen world. Look at the story of Job. And yet... While there are examples of people who are suffering just because they live in a fallen world, we also do see examples in Scripture where the opposite is true, where sin does lead to a particular outcome. You see it in the book of Acts, chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira lie about money that they gave, as though they gave a huge gift to the church, but in fact, they had kept back a portion of it for themselves. They, they could have given any amount. The problem wasn't how much they gave or didn't give. It was the fact that they made it look like they had given all. They had lied. And immediately they're struck down, both of them. There may be cases where your sin has led to painful consequences. And so if that is true, listen to what Jesus is saying here. Stop sinning. Lest something worse happen. In other words, don't repeat the sin Use this mindset of repentance, which is to turn away from it. Never forget that Jesus can tell the difference between genuine faith and insincerity. If you go back to chapter 2 and look at verses 23 through 25, Jesus has seen it all. He knows what's in the heart of men. He knows when people are stroking him, trying to get from him, and he knows when people are truly believing in him. What we observe in these two accounts is God's undeserved grace extended to sinners. One man sought after Jesus and begged for his help, and in his mercy, Jesus granted it. The other man, Jesus sought out and gave him healing. Neither had any relationship with Jesus, and yet he helped both men. This man, before the Jews found him, there's no mention of him telling people what had happened to him or who did it. As I said earlier, it's surprising that he didn't even ask Jesus for his name. After the Jews confront him and after Jesus finds him a second time and he now knows it's Jesus, there is still no word that he followed Jesus. In fact, what he does is he goes and tells the Jews, this is who did it. Don't. Squander God's grace. Let grace received be a motivation to tell others. I'm looking at a room full of people who, by and large, by your testimony as members of South Canyon Baptist Church, have said, Jesus is all to me, and all to Him I owe. He has redeemed me from my sins. My life belongs to Him. I'm unashamed to be identified as His follower, and I will do His work. Let grace received be a motivation to serve and to tell others. We have to take the gospel to the nations because we don't get to pick winners and losers. We don't know who will respond in faith, both in the word of Jesus and the person of Jesus, like the first portrait of the Father. Or this second guy who has received grace and is indifferent to it. We don't know how people will respond, but the need is there. Both needed Jesus. One understood his need went beyond the physical and to the spiritual. The other did not. We need to take the gospel. That's why we're doing this outreach event at Canyon Lake on Tuesday night. We want to have fun together as a church. That's That's great and good. And there's going to be little postcards for you to take with you. But the whole point of us going there instead of a service downtown on a Sunday morning at the square is that there are going to be lots of people at Canyon Lake for us to talk to. And so you're going to have an opportunity to get pushed out of your comfort zone and to go and say, hey, you may see a lot more people here than on a normal Tuesday night. That's because our church is here. And this is who we are And we'd love to talk to you about Jesus. Here's a card that will take you to our website. You can check out. Listen to it. Watch us. Come and visit. It's why we support uh, missionaries and ministries who are taking the gospel to places where we don't live. It's why we're sending a group of our very own over to Tanzania in August. We have a stewardship not only of the gospel, but of the grace that we have received. Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. That's what chapter 1 and verse 11 says. In spite of the rejection of his own people, Jesus was not deterred from his mission. He was going to go to the cross to save sinners like you and I. I asked a question earlier. How would you describe your interest in Jesus? Are you into Jesus for who he is or for what he can do for you? I hope that as you've seen today, these two responses to Jesus, you will see the value in the first. That God has shown grace to you today. He has revealed through his scriptures that Jesus is the way of salvation, the only way. If Jesus has the power to heal a son who's dead or near death, the power to heal a man who has been an invalid for 38 years by his just his words? Friends, that's just the tip of the iceberg of what Christ can do for us as it relates to our sin, the, struggle, the struggles that we have with addictions and sinful patterns. And so I urge you to understand that God has shown you grace today in his word. He's shown us who Jesus is. He's made us aware of our sin and our need for forgiveness His questions are supposed to prompt us to think about what do we need and are we looking in the right place for what we need? And is what we want a good thing? Has that surpassed what we truly need? How are you going to respond to such grace? Lord, we pray that as we look to this table now, we see that the Father loved us so much that He sent His own Son to save us to give His life as a ransom for us. What a joy it is to celebrate communion on Father's Day, to be reminded of that love, that deep love of the Father for us. So Lord, as we um, submit to Your Word and hear it yet again this week, we pray that You would do a work in us and call forth genuine faith. Help us to seek You, for who you are and not just what you do for us. As we look to this table and we examine ourselves, Lord, help us to consider, be mindful of the fact that truly some ate and drank unworthily of this bread in this cup and and they were judged for it. It is not for us to pick and decide who is suffering as a result of their sin versus who is suffering as a result of living in a sinful world. But Lord, let us each examine ourselves. Let us consider, are we walking in obedience to your word? Is there some way in which you are calling forth genuine faith? And Lord, give us the grace to respond to your mercy with true faith. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask the the men if they would come at this time, and we will celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We recognize that in this table, Jesus took the wrath, that judgment of God that was meant for us. And he intended this table to be celebrated in local churches by believers who have indeed placed their faith in the death, resurrection, and return of Jesus Christ. Now, if you are here visiting with us from town or on vacation, and you're not a member of South Canyon, but you are a Christian and in good standing with your church, we invite you to join in this celebration with us. And as I said in my prayer, this invitation is offered with a warning, though, because uh, Paul said Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So we're to examine ourselves and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For everyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So that means this. This is nothing significant in its earthly sense grape juice and a cracker but the symbolism behind it says that we recognize the spiritual realities that there was the living word who gave his real life for us and we believe that his death was efficacious it effectively reconciled us to God by faith and so this becomes a sacred thing because of what it symbolizes and so this is for Christians. If you're not a Christian, there, there's no need for you to participate. In fact, we'd encourage you not to. Just let these things go past you. Let's take a moment to examine ourselves before we pray and receive the bread.